So I told you last week that uh, you know when we get to the account of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in the opening verses of John chapter 6 that we're really seeing him at the height of his exposure to the people of the region. Like this, this is a big event. This is the, the pinnacle in terms of numbers that Jesus will minister to in a single setting uh, and in such a public forum with, with the possible exception of his later dialogues in the temple. Uh, and not only does John chapter 6 show us Jesus uh, at the apex of his audience count, as it were, but it's also the pinnacle of his popularity. Because at this point, he had, had not just attracted a big crowd of listeners, but he'd actually acquired a significant number of regular followers beyond just 12. But then by the time we get to the end of the chapter today, you're going to see just a a short 60 verses in, instead of capitalizing on his popularity and consolidating his authority and extending his influence, kind of a strange thing happens because it's at this point after attracting the greatest following in the history of Israel since the days of Moses, with tens of thousands of people literally and enthusiastically following Jesus around the Galilean countryside hanging on his every word. Our Lord Jesus sparks a major exodus among this mass of humanity who only 24 hours earlier, as we read, offered to give him their undying loyalty. So let's kind of take a look at it, uh, see what he said, and where this all starts to go off the rails. And again, I'm not going to be following the lectionary exactly. Uh, I told you I think it makes more sense to keep it together in the chunks that I'm that I'm preaching it from. So we'll get back to the lectionary, but just you have to humor me a little bit because I think it makes more sense like this. But we're going to be reading John chapter six, uh, tiny bit of an overlap, beginning in verse fifty-six through seventy-one. So Jesus says, "Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him." As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh gives no hope at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. There are some of you who do not believe. Jesus knew from the beginning those who were, who knew the beginning knew who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you was a devil? 
and spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that you said a lot of hard sayings in the gospel. Uh, a lot that would be a whole lot easier if we just skipped over. But we ask you, Lord, to send your Holy Spirit to us now to write these words upon our hearts, uh, impress them upon our minds, uh, and just drive them homeward so that we can receive all that you have for us. Uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you know, when we studied through the Gospel of John in Sunday school, when we got to this section, we kind of kidded with each other that with a sermon like that, uh, our Lord probably would have failed every modern-day seminary course on evangelism, right? I mean, he, he wasn't exactly winning friends and influencing people, was he? No. Uh, quite the opposite, because in the account we just read, Jesus was being pointedly, deliberately counterculture in almost any and every way uh, that you can imagine with what he's been saying. And it's not the first time that's happened. Because despite the, the modern-day effort of the liberal left to try to co-op our Christian faith into their schemes to support socialism and critical race theory and, and the predilections of, of sexual deviance, our Lord stubbornly refused to ever be politically correct when he preached. Or, or anywhere else either, right? Regardless of who he was talking to. He, he loved to poke fun at self-righteous, religious, and political leaders who always either ended up mad or insulted every time they heard it. Until eventually they all plot together to plot against him because, of course, they were important, right? And, and he was just an upstart preacher from a one-horse town on the wrong side of the tracks in Nazareth. So, of course, he couldn't be allowed to go on indefinitely standing everything on his head and making their piety and their political acumen look ridiculous. They couldn't allow their carefully crafted man-made traditions to look laughable. And so, oh, how they hated Jesus' sermon illustrations, right? The ones that shot holes right through the middle of their pride and their pompousness, while at the same time telling the average people exactly what the kingdom of God was really like. Like, remember when Jesus talked about this holier-than-thou man blowing a big old trumpet to get people's attention before he dumped a little bit of pocket change into the collection box. Or remember his stories about camels and other guys and needles. Uh, not to mention teasing the Pharisees about the camel-sized sins that they swallowed down so easily and then turned around and choked on a little neck. And worse yet, Jesus told stories about guys that were late for work that received full pay. Household stewards who were successful chiefs. Prodigal sons being celebrated on their return home. And if all that weren't bad enough, our Lord Jesus preached more on health and final judgment than he ever did on our hope of heaven. And he never tried to sell the people a bill of goods. He, he never thought to, to tone down his message until he got people hooked and then lay the hard truths on them. In other words, guys, he never played bait and switch with the gospel regardless of his offerings. And I think that's a, an important element of this uh, account not to miss here because if you were following along closely through the readings, it wasn't the, the, the looky-loos and the hangers-on and the casual companions of Jesus 
you started griping and moaning and wanting to ditch him, was it? When he staked his claim to divinity and messiahship. Notice we read in verse 60 today, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? So it turns out that the thing is, the gospel isn't just upsetting to the lost. It's an equal opportunity offender because it is offensive to human nature in general. Which, church, is one of the primary ways, by the way, that we know it's true. Because humanly speaking, when we humans write about human nature, we tend to paint a pretty rosy picture of ourselves, don't we? In fact, as, a, as a human beings, we've spent the better part of the time from the Renaissance era until now working on a whole philosophical worldview called humanism, whose basic mantra is man is the measure of all things. Just, just ask the average person on the street, regardless of their, their age, or their ethnicity, or their level of education. Uh, and the vast majority of people will tell you when they're asked uh, if people at their core are all basically good. Most people would agree with that. And, you know, that although there may be a bad apple here and there, that ultimately all we want as people is just to live and, and let live. And, and hey, you know, if we can just provide a, a little more public education or or tack on a few more government benefits, well then progressively, you know, as a species, we'll all get better and better and better. And finally, we'll erase all those blemishes on the surface that lead to all this crime and civil unrest. But you know, the Bible, on the other hand, and the teachings of our Lord in particular say something really quite different. 1 John 1.18 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And church, here's why that matters and why Jesus is so direct in his delivery of today's hard sayings. And it's this. Because before we can catch sight of the beauty of the gospel, we have to recognize the ugly, offensive truth that make that gospel necessary. And as Jesus makes clear today to the men and women that were, were seeking him in order to fill their stomachs, when it comes to this, the flesh is no hope at all. No hope at all. And what Jesus is talking about here is the, the natural state of humanity, the default starting point of all the sons and daughters of Adam since the fall. And that's the fact that because Adam sinned and in so doing radically changed the constituent nature of humanity, that now as his descendants, we are all sinners. And the Bible says we are born haters of God. And understandably, we don't like to think about that, do we? British journalist and media personality Malcolm Muggeridge put it really succinctly when he said, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable fact and at the same time the most intellectually resistant. The depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable fact and at the same time the most intellectually resistant. In other words, it's pretty easy to look around and see that world is living in sin, but nobody wants to admit it, especially themselves, right? Because the truth is none of us, me included, maybe especially me, ever wants to admit how willful and sinful and self-centered we all actually are. And so we oftentimes dress up our rebellion in the garb of middle class niceties and, and good manners, but the truth is it's all just a veneer. And it's only after God helps us to understand that truth that all the other areas of our lives can begin to fall into place. 
And that only happens when we become delivered from those lies that we habitually tell ourselves. From, from the lies that said, as I mentioned, that we're all just basically good people. Uh, people just trying to do good things and live a good life and focus on the achievements of self. The real truth is, as I told you last week, church and gospel is not about us. Amen, somebody. Right? The gospel, the good news always originates with God and not with me. It starts with God's nature and not mine because, brother and sister, God alone is holy. God alone is just. God alone is righteous. And that's a good thing, but it also presents me a really big problem. Because if God is just, what does he do about us? What does he do about you and me? But everything around us calls for our condemnation before a God who's not just good, but holy. And not only holy, but just. Where in the world do we turn? One of the only things that can bridge that huge chasm between us and him, between those two extremes and churches found in Jesus Christ and in his death on the cross. Because, brothers and sisters, that's where we see the unique revelation of the fullness of God's divine nature. That God is just, so he must condemn our sins. But God is love. So he became a man. He became a man in the person of Jesus who lived a perfect, sinless life and goes to the cross where all of the judgment and wrath of God that I deserve and that you deserve was thrown down on him instead. For our, for our redemption, for yours and mine. And so that our hearts and our minds can be open and we can actually hear from God by his Holy Spirit and be saved. That's why Jesus said in our text today, the words I've spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those, knew who those were that did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. You see how radically different that is from the message of the world, Right? When the Word of God tells us all our righteous acts are like filthy rags before a holy God, and as we said, that message of the world is that we're all just basically good people. Right? There's conflict. And, and hey, by now you may be saying to yourself, well, Pastor, I didn't come here today for you to make me feel worse about myself. Right? And I already do. To let you make me feel like a, a sinner and put me on some kind of guilt trip. I mean, come on. Of course we all fail at time, right? Nobody's perfect. I mean, I mean, after all, we're only human, right? And besides, those... Those old moral principles that the Bible talks about, they're so dated, and they're so restrictive, right? Just, they're just a product of worn-out Protestant work ethic or the remnants of puritanical Victorian social mores. So, hey, uh, do us all a favor, Pastor, and stop living in the ethical dark ages, will you? But your issue of sin is important, and I want to tell you why that is. For one thing, it's the truth. And in my opinion, it's always really important to know the truth. But secondly, it sets the backdrop for just how amazing God's love and mercy really is. I'll give you a quick example. You know, think of it when a young couple uh, is getting engaged and they begin looking around for that engagement ring. What's the very first thing the jeweler does when he pulls that tray of diamonds out of his plate case? They pick it up and they place it on a piece of jet black velvet cloth. Now, the cloth itself doesn't make any material change to the atomic structure or the physical properties of the diamond, does it? It doesn't change it one little bit. But what does it do? It sets it against a backdrop 
that allows the beauty and the clarity and the contours of the diamonds to be most clearly visible. And church, the same thing is true when we explore the nature of humanity against the perfect righteousness and the relentless love of God as a background. Does that make sense? But think about it like this. We haven't sung in a while. But think about the hymn Amazing Grace. Well, church, there's nothing really all that amazing about grace unless there's some really bad news from which that grace saves us. That was John Newton's whole point when he wrote the hymn. That God owes us nothing and that we are only saved by his grace and nothing else, right? That once I was lost, but now I'm found. Because we would have never found our way to the safe harbor without the active work of God to bring us here. And, and that that's been God's plan right from the beginning. We said last week, remember, there's not a single thing you and I can do to contribute to the work of our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And you know what? People didn't want to hear that any more in Jesus' day than people do in ours. That's why we read earlier today in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we believe and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's a pretty remarkable thing for Peter to say. But, but that's a $64,000 question, right? Where should we go? Uh, where, where do we turn when the whole world seems to have been turned upside down like it does right now? Well, obviously it's turned out we can't go to our politicians in Washington, right? Uh, because let's, let's just be honest, if the current administration can't draw a straight line of connection between hundreds of thousands of people streaming across our border and then being bussed to parts unknown all across the country without so much as a handshake, much less a health checkup, if they can't draw a straight line of connection between that and the huge spike in COVID, a brother and sister with any attempt at being politically correct, that's just a special kind of thing. Seriously. But she said, I, I just can't agree with everything that they're preaching. 
Specifically, she said, because they preach against homosexuality. And I thought, oh boy, I'm not a liar. This is going to be really fun. But I restrained myself. I was a good boy. Uh, I was quiet for a second. For a second. And then, then I asked her, what, what do you think the Bible has to say? She said, well, I don't really know. All I do know is I think Jesus just loves everybody regardless. And I just want to find a like-minded church fellowship that doesn't preach against anything or anyone else's lifestyles. I got quiet again for a second. I don't honestly know where this answer came from, so I, I thank the Holy Spirit for it. And I just said very calmly and sincerely, I said, what I, what I can tell you is that when you're on your search, don't look for a church that advertises itself like we do as Bible-believing and as Christ-centered because the kind of place you're looking for, it won't be either of those. Amen. It won't be either of those. And of course, you know, obviously that was pretty much the end of the conversation. But the sad part is she'll find a church that's sold out to the world. Amen. She will. And you see what she was doing? If you see what she was really asking? Where do I go? Where can I find the message that I want to hear? Who is it that has the answers? But then, just like those people that Jesus preached to in our text this morning, when the message comes and the actual answer is given and the path is marked out, it causes offense and a turning away. But for heaven's sake, to where? To a really nice sounding line? Because honestly, guys, it would be a whole lot easier for me just to say that here week after week and say only stuff people want to do. Right? My, my life would be so easy. We'd probably be twice the size we are now. Right? But that must not really be the answer because the popularity is the measure of success. Then, guys, Jesus' sermon in John chapter 6 was an abject failure. Right? Think about it. He preaches this sermon. A better sermon, I guarantee you, than you'll ever hear from me or from any other pastor that you're ever going to find. And what's the net result of his sermon? His church thins out. People leave him. His membership went down. But brothers and sisters, if success is measured by faithfulness to the Father and by telling the truth, if success is penetrating and exposing the human heart, if success is proclaiming the truth about Jesus' kingdom, well, then Jesus' sermon was a smashing success, wasn't it? When he says in no uncertain terms to his audience, hey, I'm not just another rabbi. No, I'm not just the son of Mary and Joseph. And I'm not interested in half-hearted, half-baked followers who just hang around because I made a good impression on them. Because you either take all of me or you get none. Because I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never grow hungry. And he who believes in me will never thirst. And I will give him eternal life and raise him up on the last day. But church, that's a hard saying. <clears throat> Praise God, we have a loving Savior. So the question remains, does all of this offend you? You take offense at this? You want to go away too? Or, or do you want to come? Or do you want to come as the Spirit gives you grace to come, as the Father enables you to come, that together we can see, as Jesus said this morning, the Son of Man ascending to where he was before Destroying arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive to obey Jesus Christ until our obedience is perfect in Him. Church, when we see Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. 
you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we admit your words are hard. Some of the stuff is tough to hear. Even tougher to preach. But we thank you, Lord, for it. We ask that you would just grip our hearts with these hard sayings, that you would uh, confront our minds with the truth, that you would confront our wills with our stubbornness. Lord, we want to see you in your truth and in your beauty. Let us not be comforted by any pleasant lies, but only see the hard, sharp edges of your truth that led you straight to Calvary and to the forgiveness that we can only find in you. We thank you, Lord, for your love and faithfulness and for all that you're about to do for us this week. And we trust ourselves to you in Jesus' name.